Welcome to episode 24 of the Security Matters podcast, where we bring you the latest news, views and opinion from across the UK's dedicated security business sector. My name's Brian Sims, and I'm the editor of Security Matters magazine. We're delighted that this podcast is sponsored by the Security Event, which runs at the NEC in Birmingham on the 25th, 26th and 27th of April 2023. Security Matters is once again serving as the lead media partner for the exhibition. To register for the show, visit www.thesecurityevent.co.uk. Turning to the news now, and the UK's resilience in the face of potential terrorist attack is to be stepped up, with the government announcing details for the protect duty. This is now to be known as Martin's Law in tribute to Martin Hett, who was killed alongside 21 other innocent bystanders during the Manchester Arena terror attack of 2017. Working closely with security partners, the business sector and victims groups and campaigners, among them Martin's mother Fegan Murray OBE and the Martin's Law campaign team, as well as survivors against terror, the new legislation will require venue management teams to take steps to improve public safety, with measures dependent on the size of the venue and the activities taking place within. At present, the threat picture is both complex and ever-evolving. Recent attacks demonstrate that terrorists may choose to target a broad range of locations. Martin's Law will ensure that security preparedness is delivered consistently right across the UK, realising better protection for the public. The government's plans have been formed in the wake of public consultation and extensive engagement involving industry, charities, local authorities, security experts and also survivors. 70% of the thousands who responded to the consultation agreed that those responsible for publicly accessible locations should take measures to protect the public from potential attacks. In practice, Martin's Law will follow a tiered model linked to activity that takes place at a location and also its capacity. The process is aimed at preventing any undue burden on businesses. A standard tier will apply to locations with a maximum capacity of over 100, which can undertake low-cost, simple and yet still effective activities to improve preparedness. This will include training, information sharing and the completion of a preparedness plan to embed key practices, among them locking doors to delay attackers' progress and fashioning knowledge on life-saving treatments that can be administered by staff while awaiting the arrival of the emergency services. An enhanced tier will focus on high-capacity locations in recognition of the potential consequences of a successful attack. Management teams for those locations with a capacity upwards of 800 people at any one time will also be required to undertake a risk assessment to inform the development and implementation of a thorough security plan. Subsequent measures could include creating a vigilance and security culture, the implementation of physical measures such as CCTV surveillance, and also inducting new systems and processes to better enable the consideration of security. The government will establish an inspection and enforcement regime due promoting compliance and positive cultural change and issuing credible and fair sanctions for serious breaches. Dedicated statutory guidance and bespoke support will be provided by the government to ensure those in scope can effectively discharge their responsibilities, with even small venues also able to benefit from this and take voluntary action. Expert advice, training and guidance is already available on the online protective security hub that is Protect UK. In practical terms, Martin's Law will extend to and apply right across the whole of the UK. The government will publish draft legislation in due course to ensure the law stands the test of time. Home Secretary Suella Braverman has observed, Protecting the public from danger is a key and critical responsibility of any government. The terrorist threat we face is diverse and continually evolving, which is precisely why this legislation is so very important. In addition, Braverman stated, I would like to thank Fegan Murray and the Martins Law campaigners for their support in helping to bring forward this vital reform. Their tireless efforts have assisted in underpinning our approach. The heartbreaking stories from survivors and their families are a constant reminder for us all as to why we must deliver on this commitment to work together on improving public security. In 
response, Began Murray noted, Martin's law isn't going to stop terrorism, but common sense security and making sure venue teams are doing all that they can to keep people safe could well mean fewer people have to suffer what myself and the families of the Manchester Arena victims have had to endure. In conclusion, Murray commented, I welcome the government's commitment to including smaller venues and working quickly on this legislation. It's absolutely vital that we now take the necessary steps to protect ourselves and others wherever possible. I also very much hope that other countries learn from this groundbreaking legislation. The Business Continuity Institute has just published its latest Resilience in Conflict report, which is sponsored by International SOS. The detailed and thought-provoking document examines how conflicts in regions around the world are affecting organisations, how those organisations manage resilience during periods of conflict and, by extension, the role of technology in this process. Unfortunately, it's now become important to consider the volume of armed conflicts and disputes currently taking place around the world and the range of impacts they can exert on organisations, from those who have operations in affected areas to those who have suppliers or customers in those areas, and also what responses can be prepared to mitigate the impacts. Indeed, the BCI's report finds that 61.7% of organisations are currently affected by the impacts of conflict. Of this proportion, a majority, i.e. 74.8%, say that they're experiencing secondary impacts but without physical involvement in the conflict itself. Therefore, beyond considering the primary effects of a conflict, it's critical that organisations also consider the ripple effect of conflict on operations by assessing the resiliency of their supply chains or the rising cost of energy, themselves just two potential threats at the moment. Other concerns highlighted by practitioners include damage to critical infrastructure, as well as staff shortages caused by military collapse, relocations for safety reasons and site shutdowns. The report examines the effects of those impacts on organisations, with 32.8% of the latter having to alter their operational model due to conflict, and 31% having to shut down operations entirely as a preventative measure. If based in multiple countries, some of the measures taken may even temporarily impact an organisation's ability to operate in certain geographies. However, the complexities of modern warfare and its impacts are also being considered by some organisations, with almost half of participants reporting that they now have access to mental health and wellbeing services, a clear requirement in fact during such a crisis. In addition, the the main protocols to protect staff during conflicts, such as international evacuation and relocation from high-risk areas, just over half of the survey participants are now also considering cyber and IT arrangements as part of the protocol to protect staff in armed conflict areas. This shows the growing importance of cyber resilience, in fact, in a landscape where the strategies of hybrid warfare are increasingly deployed. Looking in more detail at which teams are activated to mitigate the impacts of conflict, 36.7% of respondents include business continuity management in the response, while 61.3% encompass crisis management. positive finding of this report is that the relationship between business continuity management and also crisis management within organisations was widely found to be effective, at a rating of 76.7% in fact. Of course, it's critical that this relationship remains effective throughout the organisation's response to a conflict in order to ensure the efficiency and agility required to make the right decisions during a crisis situation. Risk perception is among the main challenges to implementing resilience in conflict areas and has been flagged as a concern for 36.8% of participants. These respondents, in fact, suggest there's too much focus on other major disruptions events, such as the COVID-19 pandemic, for example, which may serve to deflect attention away from the impact of conflict on organisations. Only 50.6% of organisations who responded to the survey conduct screening procedures for staff before they're sent to areas potentially subject to conflict. Of those organisations who do screen their staff, security, health checks and cultural assessments may be conducted as part of this. Of those organisations which use software to keep operations resilient in conflict areas, 50% of them employ crisis communications, while a further 50% rely on cyber and information security technology. Rachel Elliott, the Head of Thought Leadership at the BCI, has noted, This has been one of the most eye-opening reports the BCI has ever written. The sheer number of organisations who are currently affected by conflict shows the importance of monitoring unfolding intelligence about it, in addition to considering both the direct and indirect impacts of current and potential conflict when planning. 
Rachel delivered an excellent presentation on business continuity and business resilience as part of the 2022 edition of the Security Matters Digital Conference, which ran on Wednesday the 9th of November. View the session on demand by visiting the event's dedicated website at www.smdigitalconference. That's all one word, smdigitalconference.com. Our first guest on this edition of the Security Matters podcast is Jay Bullock, the Managing Director of Anubis Security. The Lanarkshire-based Security Industry Authority approved contractor scheme registered company was formed back in 2014 and now boasts upwards of £10 million in turnover per annum. Jay founded the company having forged a decade-long career in the security business sector, during which time he concentrated his attentions on the nighttime leisure economy and also the retail sector. Through time at Anubis Security, Jay's vision has transformed the company's structure, policies and procedures. There's an ongoing drive for staff training and retention. Indeed, Jay is a firm believer in the adage that investing in employees beyond the industry's bare minimum, looking after them and valuing them, will realise a far better service for clients. On a day-to-day basis, Jay assumes overall responsibility for corporate and financial strategies, in addition to compliance matters. He very successfully led the company's COVID-19 response and has been instrumental in the successful delivery of security for major events, among them COP26. For this edition of the Security Matters podcast, Jay concentrates on business licensing, Martin's Law, and also the impact of the current cost of living crisis on the security business sector. Thank you very much for joining us on the podcast, Jay. Could you outline what Anubis Security is all about as a business and also offer a flavour of your own career history to date and what defines you as a security professional? Um, yeah, pleasure to be here, Brian. Um, thank you very much for inviting me. So um, we'll go with the business first. So um, Anubis Security Limited, and we are just in the middle of a major rebrand to go to Anubis Group. Um, we opened in 2014 as a small events and um, a man guarding business and um, supplying security officers across the UK. Um, we predominantly subcontracted into some of the larger players within the industry um, uh, back then, so which was um, which was good and a really good learning process. Um, we then continued to expand, and thanks to some of our policies and procedures and the the effort that we put into our our, our own guards and our training, which we do offer added value to our clients. We've expanded significantly, so we just broke about the £10 million barrier last year. Some of that was due to the COVID response. We need to look at that um, uh, and, and take a good look at that. Um, we, But we realistically will now be about £7.5 million business going forwards, um, looking to expand constantly. Um, predominantly, we are Scottish-based. Um, but for our events division, we literally go across the UK. So that was one of our proudest moments last year. Um, we were delivering two events, one in Brighton and one in Dunnit, which is right at the top of Scotland at the same time. So um, uh, when people say, oh, do you do UK coverage? I, I can truly say, yes, we do. <laughs> so um, uh, so that's all about the business. Um, myself, personally, I joined the industry when I was 18 years old. I um I worked on the doors for a very, very long time. <laughs> um, that was pre-SIA license as well. So I'm probably one of the last people who can really remember that because they came in very quickly after I joined the industry. Um, came to Scotland to take over a large group of nightclubs as their head of security. Managed to do that across the, across the board um, and sort of just continued to expand the career from there. 
took a career break for a couple of years um, out of the industry. And then 2014 hit and that was the Commonwealth Games for Scotland here, which was a major deployment for 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 the for basically for the country and um uh, because of my knowledge of the industry and the people who I knew and my ability to gain staff um I was phone called and asked to provide staff and um at the time we say I I looked at it and was like why don't we do this um why don't we do this properly and um opened Anubis security and pretty much went from strength to strength um 2016, we became ACS. So very quickly, we, we, we realized the value of ACS and the accreditation schemes that surround that, as well as safe contractor and some other bits and pieces like that as well. And um, I think that's really what allowed us to expand um, so quickly. So, yeah, that's where we were. Anubis Security is a registered approved contractor, Jay, as you said, with the Security Industry Authority. Now, that being so, what are your own thoughts on the proposal for business licensing? So, yeah, that's a very interesting question. <laughs> um, we are massively in favour of it. Um, I mean, I can, I'm going to break down the economics of it a little bit here um, from our point of view as a, as a fairly medium to small business, I would say. Um, and we are hugely in favour of it. We, I, I personally sit on one of the ACS steering groups, which I think is a fantastic idea um, that they try to listen to the industry. Um, and, and it is brilliant. But unfortunately, what we've done for a number of years now, we sort of banged our heads against the brick wall with the with, with the SIA. And I don't believe it's a fault of theirs. I, I believe that possibly it's a fault of um, legislation coming in and then coming out and then appetites from one government to another in order to do this. But um, the white paper that came out following the MEN disaster clearly outlines that business licensing should be something that that, that is very, very heavily looked at. Um, for myself personally, I believe the ACS structure is already there, and I also believe that that could easily be um, brought down to a level where it, it would be suffi- sufficient for just business licensing. So maybe make ACS gold, silver, and bronze, um, and and possibly make bronze the very very minimum level you can have. Um, to operate within the industry. And this is all brought towards compliance, which is obviously massively um, important for HMRC and, and, and et cetera, et cetera, and licensing, and also to level the playing field. We as a business sit in a, I wouldn't want to say a, a black hole, but we sit in between two, two, two issues. One, when we go and price a job for, um, for, for a private client, let's say, um, we are always very, very much price generated, which can be difficult because we simply cannot compete with somebody who is not willing to be compliant with HMRC rules and doesn't have any of the bills or anything that we, we do as a, as a fairly large company in that way. So we go, let's say we go and um, uh, price a pub door. We can't really move for anything less than £15 an hour by the time we've been caught with Nick, national insurance contributions, pension contributions um, <laughs> and holiday pay. And that leaves us paying a very, very low rate to the guards on the ground, which we then can't get the staff for. And um, We'll go out maybe £15 an hour, maybe £16 an hour, something along those lines. But somebody sat in a bedroom somewhere will come in with no insurance, paying cash in hand to their guards and be like, I can do this for £12.50 an hour. Give the guards £10 an hour cash. And guess what? I'm not getting the contract. Um, And then on the opposite side of this, we have 
are private and and public contract tenders which we go for we do we do fairly successfully at the ones we go for but we have to be so careful about what we go for because it's a resource issue they're hugely complicated take a significant amount of time to do and unfortunately we don't have the ability like some of the much larger companies do to have a whole tendering department that can just dedicate their time to gaining new business um unfortunately it, it sometimes the tendering falls down to down to me and some of my ops team and that can be exceptionally um not tiresome but it can be very very um difficult to manage that and manage the entire business at the same time so really truthfully we sit in this area that can be really really difficult um we can't win against the big boys because they've got so much resources and when we do it's very very it, it, it took a lot of resources ourselves and then we can't compete when there is the, the, the there is businesses out there who are just doing whatever they want whenever they want and in no matter how and the HMRC joining up with the SIA has been a good thing. They don't seem to be finding a lot of non-compliance, which does worry me, especially PAYE, HMRC, stuff like that. I think there's a lot of non-compliance within the industry and business licensing fundamentally will have to get rid of that. And once we do, we can start reinvesting into the staff. We can pay them more money because there's not the option of clients going out there and getting it exceptionally cheaply. So we can start paying more money because we can put our prices up as a legitimate business ever so slightly, which we can then reflect in giving the guards better pay. Um, and then subsequently to that, we can start reinvestment into the guards as well. So they're not meeting a minimum standard of an SIA license. They're going out there and they're having career development and they're having additional things given to them, for example, um, crowd management stuff. So they can like a level five in crowd management or what we're really keen to do is we're keen to do medical additional medical um, training. So we'll train them up to FREC three standard, which is far and above and beyond um, what the minimum sort of like first aid certificate is, which is generally helping to protect the UK public and our client staff. So if there's a medical emergency, they can do something much more sophisticated than um, what they would be taught with with just a basic first aid certificate. Interestingly, I also have my own thoughts on it that realistically, I think we should maybe look at ourselves we need to look at internally and i've had this row on quite a lot of social media um platforms to to say like look when the guards accept stop stop accepting cash in hand work they will they have the ability to put these small businesses out of business by not accepting cash in hand work there will be obviously a massive pain there for some of these guys who are doing this and you can't necessarily blame them hugely because they have families to feed at the end of the day but when they stop accepting that it will self-police the system and maybe just maybe we all stand a better chance as i said we can put additional pricing in and we can give them the, the, the guards what they what they deserve to be paid because realistically you can go and stack shelves now um uh, for more money than you can get being a security officer um guarding a building or heaven forbid nighttime economy um which can still be fairly low paid and hasn't seen a dramatic pay increase for a lot of years we are still in a labor shortage probably 62,000 people short um across the board which is a huge amount of people to be able to just do what we do and we see this reflected every day um in when we're trying to staff but we do not receive it reflected in client rates so it's um 
an interesting conundrum for the industry, to say the least. At present, Jay, the economy is clearly in a period of downturn. This could well affect procurement spend by end users going forward. What sort of problems will that present for security companies like yourselves? And how can these problems be overcome, in your view? It's going to be a massive issue. Um, we have a duty to protect the public as much as we can uh, within the within the legislation that we have. Um, and that needs to be taken seriously. And I think that's now being shown from what came out of the, the very unfortunate events at the MEN. Security is quite often... I, I, I believe that if a lot of our a lot of clients, if they didn't have to have it, wouldn't have it. Um, but they unfortunately they they have to for a number of economic reasons, and one of them is their insurance says you have to have a certain amount level of, of responsibility for your own premises, um, which is very very interesting. Going forwards, I'm I'm not going to be. I, I wish I did have the solution to what the, the issue is going to be. We are going to see a significant less spend, but at the point in time as people begin to struggle in the UK population and what we're seeing anyway from people's behaviours particularly at events and things like that there is more and more criminality coming into our societies and only with a close working relationship between the police and the security industry do I think that we're going to be able to solve that. So I think one of the one of the, the solutions to it is to integrate security more with police rather than having this us and them mentality. I know that there's schemes down south that work quite well, uh, that give companies, I believe it's the CSAS scheme, that give police, um, private security companies, basic police powers. Um, we don't have that up here in Scotland, so we haven't really accredited for it, although we do have offices down south. So I think maybe the expansion of that scheme under very, very, very tight monitoring. The ACS scheme is fantastic, but we do sometimes see a variance in quality between one ACS company who maybe scores fairly, fairly low on that, and then the ACS companies who score fairly high on it. And I think if we were to introduce a CSAS scheme and expand its powers, then I think that would be a way of getting around the the, the spend that some councils don't want. And maybe it comes from central government realising the fact that the police are massively outnumbered and increasing and, and basically increasing extra threats every day. So I think that may be one of the one of the things that might help is that integration between security industry and police in terms of them not wanting to spend money. I think they need to reassess their risk matrices on, on, on a lot of things. Um, what is the bigger risk um, spending this amount of money over here with a security guard company or a security officer company, an ACS um, accredited company or spending nothing and possibly um, uh, receiving damage to to heaven forbid people, but property uh, and the associates with that, because one one issue on a site can can lead to hundreds of thousands of pounds being lost. That's pretty much your bill for the year. Um, we are obviously moving into a much more automated view of of it as well, and some of the camera systems and the some of the, yeah some of the camera systems that are now about with the full analytics are fantastic. But if you're a criminal, let's be honest, you're probably going to a site with fake number plates. Um, equipped, equipped to do the job that you are wishing to do. And realistically, what are you getting for your money with a camera system? You're getting a recording, unfortunately, of whatever criminality they are doing and with chances of being caught very, 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 very low, especially harking back there to police resources that you're going to ring up. Unfortunately, a forklift has been stolen off of site. We've got a recording. 
most likely the police will not have the resources to to come out and do anything that you'll get a crime report you'll then get you'll go to your insurance companies and you will get a payment out but saying that your insurance will increase for the following year and us as a business have seen massive increases in insurance costs um across the security industry as well because of um, unfortunately the the behavior of some companies within the industry who just don't take it seriously and have massive claims so it's it's, it's an interest again it's interesting times so <laughs> the british security industry association recently forecast that somewhere in the region of 62,000 plus new security officers are going to be needed to meet demand in the next 12 months or so jay in your view what does the industry need to do in order to meet that requirement so we obviously alluded to that slightly earlier um it's a huge amount of people and it's very poor that there wasn't the foresight that this was going to happen from not just not just our regulators but the industry as a whole we know that we are a registered training academy we are BIAB registered training academy so we deal with the with the courses uh, on a day-to-day basis we knew that we run courses every single month and they're usually full and that was a constant tick over and we also saw the numbers from the SIA saying that nothing was really changing people were coming into the industry and leaving the industry round about at an equal rate pre-covid covid hit Obviously, security officers left massively and also there was no training going on. So how did we not foresee this and how was there nothing put into place that would allow essential training to continue? That's an issue that we need to look at because if something ever like that happens again, we need to be able to not go into the situation that we that we are in now. Having said that, whilst I like reflecting on issues that have occurred, because that's where you get your learning from and you don't repeat the same mistake twice, we now need to to look forward and what are we going to do what are we going to put into place to, to to do this and i i i think the answer will be is we need to look at the the training provision is it suitable for what we're putting people into and i think it, it i think certainly in some cases yes in other cases definitely not going forwards we need to be able to encourage people to want to come into the industry and that is the fundamental issue and that is driven by two things one of them is 90% of it. And the 90%, unfortunately, is the wages within the industry are very poor, quite often around national minimum wage. That doesn't encourage anybody to want to come into the industry. And the people who are forced into the industry aren't particularly looking forward to a career in the industry because there simply isn't one. The amount of supervisor roles to then go to management roles it's it's a huge, huge issue because there aren't that many management roles within the industry because they're usually um, not cost effective. They're, they're dealing with dealing with as many guards as you can in order to get through. And that's some companies business models, um, which is absolutely terrifying. Fundamentally, we need to encourage people into this industry. And that is going to require a material change from everybody and the SIA. Going back to business licensing, which is what we were saying, speaking about before. Once we have that in place, we can maybe encourage new people into it because we can we can change our rates and we are dedicated by the lowest common denominator. And it's no longer a race to the bottom. And I also think businesses need to our clients need to look at what they're getting value for money wise. And we need to be encouraged to not do the minimum level. I just want a guard in a cabin. Is that okay? Well, yeah, it is okay, But 
what's that guard going to do? Let's look at the site-specific instructions. Let's, let's look at the added value that we can give you. Let's look at what we can actually do for you, as opposed to carrying on with the mindset of that's what that officer does over there. So it can be, um, and I think we need to move away from that. Or oh, a guard. No, we need to be an officer. We need to have a career progression. We need to be paid what we should be paid to attract the biggest and the best and the brightest into the industry. Because we don't, we, we unfortunately, we don't have that either. The, the quality out there at the bottom of the labour chain is is very, very, very poor. And when we look at incidents that have happened, we wonder how they have occurred. And the answer is, unfortunately, because we, we, we do have some very, very poor officers um, within the industry. And it's down to the training and it's down to the compliance and it's down to what businesses are willing to accept, not just the security industry putting the putting the officer out, but also what clients are willing to accept because they feel it's a tick box exercise. Oh, I've got that guy, tick box, and they move on and, and we don't interact. We're really lucky with a lot of our clients. They, they they take us seriously, they listen to us, we do site briefs with them. And then again, the event sector, we're, we're, we're really well thought of within the event sector, thank goodness. Our clients have stuck by us for a number of years and they, they value our expertise that we bring. And we do genuinely bring an expertise and not just that, we care. We care for our clients. We care what happens to their sites, what happens to their events. It's not a go in, get the job done and run out as fast as you can afterwards. So, yeah, we, we need to look at it fundamentally from those points of view. But we need to in, we need to attract more people into the industry. We can only do that through wages and career progression and the ability to actually have a career within the industry. As you mentioned there, Jay, one of the areas in which Anubis Security provides its services is indeed event security. Now, there's been much talk of late about the government's proposed protect duty. Do you believe this is a positive step forward? And if so, what do you want to see being brought forward in the new legislation? So in terms of the protect duty, yes, fundamentally, it's an absolutely brilliant idea. Um, We need to make sure that it's actually doable and actually scalable, given the nature of the events company, sorry, the, the events industry. We need to look at more fundamental training. We need to make sure that the personally i believe that events sector should be something completely separate to, to to everything else within the industry obviously within the acs structure we have um security guarding we have door supervision we have close protection and we can acs accredit ourselves as a business for those and we are accredited for two of those the door supervision obviously and the security guarding there is no events sector for that but when you look at the amount of turnover that events bring to the security industry it does question you why there is no um, ACS scheme for events companies which I think is something that would go a long way to improving standards in it I mean I've been at some of the biggest festivals and events in the UK um, and I've stood there and I've looked around and I've been to myself like this is not fantastic and it's very much a turn up on the day gets thrown out to sh- i've been one of the guys who's been thrown out turned up on the day i'm thrown out to shit i've worked my way through here and there's been fundamentally no briefing no instructions given certainly no handbooks or something like that which is something we do that the officers can refer to uh, over the course of the, the, the event or the weekend or however long it's going on for. It's just very much a, a stand on this position and um, that's what you're doing and no further brief given. That's massively worrying. We've been involved, like I said, with some of the biggest events um, in the UK. We now have a full festival calendar of only our events, which we are the lead supplier for. And we 
we start briefing two weeks out to our management and our supervisor teams about what is expected of them on the day, what area they are going to be taking, taking charge of, what that area represents for them, what the, what, what could be some of the possibilities within there, what's their challenges within there. And then we expect those supervisors on the day to give specific area instructions to the, to, to the staff members that they are given. There is also an overarching brief given to all staff, again, going back to protect duty, lone and vulnerable females uh, or anybody um, at all, not just females, but uh, males as well. We particularly work in the Brighton area for, for events and stuff like that. So it has to be very much like that. Anti-terrorism and what we expect and some basic BD or, or BDO, which is um, behaviour detection um, and what we would we would see it as something looking suspicious. And if they see something like that, by all means, call somebody uh, and we will take a further look at it. And these things just aren't done uh, as as a whole. And it's it's a little bit terrifying, to be honest with you. So, yeah, the, the, we're all for the protect duty. We, we need to expand it significantly. And businesses, again, need to be looked at and, and uh, we need to turn the magnifying glass on ourselves. And what are we actually doing out there? And the number of small events that have that over 800, 900 capacity, which is going to be coming in with, with Martin's law, that run off of door companies supply, um, supplying their security um, is absolutely terrifying. A door supervising company that predominantly work in the nighttime leisure industry is not an events company. They don't have the qualifications for it. They don't know what crowd management is or crowd dynamics. They don't know. I mean, the number of of festivals we've taken over from some of these smaller events and they've got no idea about pit barrier, loading capacities, flow through gates, like no idea to work these out, let alone they even exist. Sooner or later, I'm of the belief that I think something's going to go wrong somewhere. And I think it's going to be very, very, very much the the industry's fault. And it, it, it worries me significantly that somebody's going to bring somebody onto site as a worker and it's going to go exceptionally wrong and you're never going to I mean it's difficult enough to catch it even with intelligence but still there's there's no there's very little intelligence led about and when you're going at the last minute advertising on social media for a guard then there's there's very little due diligence there that would mitigate those risks and it's 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 not a good thing I don't think and finally Jay and looking ahead what would you say are the three key challenges facing the security business sector in 2023 um, um, so I think we've touched on many of them. The 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 complete lack. Well, the amount of staffing is going to be a massive challenge. We just simply don't have enough people. I think it's going to get worse. Um, to be honest with you, I think people are going to go and try and maximise their value within their jobs because of the because of what's happening with the general economy and the cost of living crisis. Why would you stay within the industry which is the lowest paying when you can realistically go to Tesco? or Asda or Aldi and be paid more than what you're going to be paid doing this job. And fundamentally, you can say, well, maybe we don't work quite as hard as shelf stackers a lot of the time. We probably don't, let's be honest, but a due diligent uh, security officer would be working just as hard, uh, a really diligent one, and they would be looking to expand that. But so fundamentally, the, the, the amount of staff within the industry is not enough. We've alluded to it. That's going to be a huge challenge for everybody. The... Second challenge is going to be attempting to train enough people to a high enough quality that we can improve on the industry and we are getting better as opposed to 
um, slipping back the way. And then the, the last one again is, is, is we need the SIA. And I've spoken to them face to face and I implore them and I implore the government to bring back the legislation in for business licensing. It's got to be done. We've got to do it. I know there's no huge appetite for it at the moment, but we cannot continue to work in this way, the, the ad hoc way that we that we are working, and 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 improve upon the situation that, that this, that's coming around. And we desperately, desperately need to work together with the police, the government, and the SIA to form a coherent pattern, uh, and, and a group across the UK in order to protect the general public. And at the end of the day, that's what we're here for: is the protection of the general public and our clients. The Financial Conduct Authority has fined Santander UK PLC the sum of £107.7 million after the regulator found serious and persistent gaps in the latter's anti-money laundering controls affecting its business banking clients. Between the 31st of December 2012 and the 18th of October 2017, Santander failed to properly oversee and manage its anti-money laundering systems, which significantly impacted the account oversight of more than 560,000 business customers. Santander had ineffective systems in place to adequately verify the information provided by customers about the business they would be doing. The firm also failed to properly monitor the money customers had told them would be going through their accounts, compared with what was actually being deposited. Mark Stewart, the Executive Director of Enforcement and Market Oversight at the FCA, commented, Santander's poor management of its anti-money laundering systems and the company's inadequate attempts to address the resulting problems created a prolonged and severe risk of money laundering and financial crime. As part of our commitment to prevent and reduce financial crime, we continue to take action against firms which fail to operate proper anti-money laundering controls. In one case, a new customer opened an account as a small translations business with expected monthly deposits of £5,000. Within six months, it was receiving millions in deposits and swiftly transferring the money to separate accounts. The account in question was recommended for closure by the bank's AML team in March 2014, but poor processes and structures meant that this recommendation was not acted upon until September 2015. As a result, the customer continued to receive and transfer millions of pounds through its account. The account remained open until the FCA wrote to Santander in December 2016. The Financial Conduct Authority identified several other business banking accounts which Santander failed to manage correctly, leaving the bank open to serious money laundering risk. There were also examples of the bank failing to promptly deal with red flags associated with suspicious activity, such as automated monitoring alerts. These failures led to more than £298 million passing through the bank before it closed the accounts. Santander knew there were weaknesses in its AML systems and controls and began a programme of improvements in 2013. While these changes resulted in some gains, the company decided that the changes did not sufficiently address the underlying weaknesses. In 2017, the business decided to implement a comprehensive restructuring of its processes and systems. Santander UK continues to invest in its ongoing transformation and remediation programme. In point of fact, Santander has not disputed the FCA's findings and has agreed to settle, which means that the company has qualified for a 30% discount on the file. Without that discount, the financial penalty would have been close to £154 million. Professional Security Officer Live is set to launch at the security event, which runs at the NEC in Birmingham from the 25th to the 27th of April 2023. This brand new show within a show, organised by the 19 Group, will feature alongside the award-winning the security event, duly extending the latter security-focused offer and realising a dedicated concentration on frontline security professionals. Tristan Norman, Group Director for the 19 Group, informed Security Matters, launching Professional Security Officer Live demonstrates our commitment to the security industry. It's a market we know very well. 
Our research has shown that there's a genuine demand from our exhibitors, partners and visitors to recognise the critical role that security personnel, operatives and frontline professionals play in the security business sector. Never seen before and long overdue in the eyes of many commentators, Professional Security Officer Live will host major industry brands from the security guarding sector, all of whom will be showcasing the latest products, services, technologies, training and solutions that enable security personnel to perform their duties in protecting people, places and assets. Supported by a comprehensive free-to-attend conference program that will address key issues within the sector, among them training, career pathways, the skills and talent shortage, standards, health and well-being and physical protection, Professional Security Officer Live is warmly welcomed and supported by leading industry stakeholders, including the International Professional Security Association, the International Foundation for Protection Officers, Skills for Security, the Security Institute and also ASIS UK. Sati Arai, the CEO at IPSA, commented, IPSA is delighted to be part of the Professional Security Officer Live launch at the Security Event 2023. There's a definite need to attract, train and retain talent in the private security industry in order to address the ever-changing landscape of risk and raise standards within the sector. We're very pleased the team at the 19 Group is leading and driving the changes focused on security's front line. Security officers are the heartbeat of our industry. Ipswich is thrilled to support the launch of Professional Security Officer Live as an event partner. Mike Hurst, Director and Chair of the Advisory Board at the International Foundation for Protection Officers in the UK and Ireland, observed, With members and students in 54 countries, IFPA is dedicated to advancing the role of the security officer through education, certification, developing career pathways and supporting mental health and well-being. On that basis, we're delighted to support Professional Security Officer Live and very much look forward to working with the 19 Group on further enhancing what is a vitally important area of the security profession. Registration is now open. Professional Security Officer Live is free to attend and co-located with the other shows that comprise the Safety and Security Event series run by the 19 Group, namely the Security Event, the National Cyber Security Show, the Health and Safety Event, the Fire Safety Event and also the Workplace Event. Visit the website at www.thesecurityevent.co.uk to register your attendance. Entries are now open for the Fire and Security Matters Awards 2023. Organised by Western Business Media Limited magazine Security Matters and Fire Safety Matters, the awards are run in conjunction with the Fire Industry Association. The Fire and Security Matters Awards generated more than 220 entries last year, while 450 plus guests attended the award ceremony itself. The 2023 scheme is free to enter and designed to recognise excellence and innovation in the fire and security business sectors. The winners of the Fire and Security Matters Awards will be revealed at a gala dinner and ceremony to be held at the CBS Arena in Coventry on Thursday the 15th of June 2023. The ceremony itself will be hosted by popular comedian and Mock of the Week captain Hugh Dennis. It only takes a few minutes to enter the Fire and Security Matters Awards and this is the perfect way in which to gain much deserved recognition for yourself, your team, your colleagues, a client, a product or service, a project or campaign or indeed your organisation. The list of security categories for 2023 is as follows. Security Manufacturer of the Year, Security Guarding Company of the Year, Security Installation Company of the Year, Security or Risk Manager of the Year, Security Company of the Year, Security Team of the Year, Security Project of the Year, Security Industry Women of the Year, and also Security Innovation of the Year. The deadline for entries to be received is Tuesday the 31st of March 2023. Enter the Fire and Security Matters Awards 2023 for free online at www.firesecurityawards, that's all one word, firesecurityawards.com. Our second guest on episode 24 of the Security Matters podcast is Gonzalo de Gisbert, Head of Product and Business Development at Freevolt Technologies. The company is firmly focused on realising next-generation biometric smart card products for the access control, cryptocurrency wallet, healthcare and payments markets. The proud holder of a master's degree in electrical and electronic engineering from Imperial College London, Gonzalo spent a year and a half at Jaguar Land Rover working on electrical engineering research. He then moved to British Airways as a graduate engineer in July 2012. 
April 2014 witnessed the beginning of a seven-year tenure at Drayson Technologies. An initial role as technical account manager led to a move into product management. Gonzalo then became head of product management in March 2018 with a keen focus on business plans, pricing models and also marketing activities for the business. Gonzalo began his present position at Freevolt Technologies back in October 2021, formulating strategy, preparing sales collateral and also an active involvement in R&D activities are all very much part of the remit. During the course of our interview, Gonzalo examines the major challenges to be addressed by the company on behalf of its end-user customers and also looks ahead to the next 12 months in terms of key goals and plans for the business. Thanks very much for joining us on the podcast, Gonzalo. Can you tell us about the history of Freebolt Technologies as a company, please? Yeah, absolutely, Brian, and uh, it's great to be here. Um, so, yeah, so, so Freevolt Technologies is a UK-based technology company which uh, develops next-generation biometric smart card products for the access control, uh, cryptocurrency, healthcare, and payment sectors. Now, we originally spun out from research completed at Imperial College in London, um, which about nine years ago, so 2013, um, and effectively our technology, Freevolt, is a global uh, award-winning suite of patented and patent-pending technologies which recycle and harvest RF energy. Effectively, what that means is the same way you take solar and convert that to electricity, we take radio waves from transmission networks, NFC, cellular, Wi-Fi, etc., and convert that into, into um, energy, which we can then use to power next-generation biometric smart cards. Now, uh, what makes our technology unique and kind of what makes our company unique is that our uh, Freevolt technology can uh, harvest and collect this energy with kind of over 80% end-to-end efficiency. Now, what that really means is that compared to other comparable solutions on the market, our energy harvesting is about two to three times more powerful. And so what that means is that in applications, you can um, really get away with just throwing a battery at it and actually use this energy around us. Um, and, you know, we've got, I think, over 20 granted patents at the moment, protecting IP across multiple territories. So we, we have been really doing this for a while and kind of perfecting it and, and really keeping our edge kind of as it were. Um, and what that all means is that as a company, kind of our, our mission is to deliver advanced biometric smart cards, which feature fraud protection and improved security, but without having to impose any changes on the existing card infrastructure or also the user experience. And, and that's kind of where, where the Freebolt technology comes into its own. And what are the major challenges the businesses' products are seeking to address? Um, the major challenges, I'd say there's probably three, well, probably four, actually. Um, I, I guess the first is kind of around fraud, you know, whether it's payments or identity or access. We're surrounded by fraudulent activity on a, on a day-to-day basis. Um, you know, I think in access control, IBM does an annual study which talks about the costs of fraud. And I think in 2021, it was about three and a half million dollars for um, a physical security breach. Banking as well, you know, contactless limits are going up year on year. And as a result, you know, credit and debit card fraud is also going up. Um, and so really this soaring cost of financial fraud um, and, and losses, both, you know, data and and um, money, it is driving the market for more high security solutions, both kind of on the, on the digital side, but also on the security side. And, and that's where a lot of people are looking at, at the smart cards, whether it's our banking cards, our access cards, et cetera, because it's something that we've already got, something that we use and people are used to, right? People don't like change. And it's how can we use these existing products and form factors to, to combat this fraud. But ultimately, the real problem still remains in the ability to power these cards in which the data is stored securely and in which you're trying to add more fraud prevention mechanisms, right? 
Um, so that, that's, I guess, the first one that, that I'd, I'd talk about. The second is kind of leading on to the subject of powering these cards is, is around batteries and this battery mentality that we have, you know, with, with the proliferation of connected devices booming, um, you know, whether it's the latest iPhone or a tracker for your keys or wireless headphones, we're surrounded by all these portable devices um, that require small and efficient means of powering them. And typically we've just kind of thrown a battery at it, as it were. Um, and of course, this has its advantages that, you know, you can you can use the devices cable free, as it were. Um, but ultimately, there's also the cost of maintenance that you have to consider. So how frequently do you need to recharge these devices? And that's assuming you remember to the amount of times I've gotten on a plane and forgotten to charge my headphones. Um, I can count many times. Um, but there's also, you know, the cost of disposal, right, from a sustainability perspective, um, you know, whether we discard or, or lose these or upgrade these devices, what's the impact on the environment with lithium and other harsh chemicals that we're using for these energy storage devices, as in batteries, um, and kind of how you get rid of those safely. So I think that's where Freevolt kind of tries to address the problem through, as I was saying earlier, kind of using this existing radio energy that's around us on a daily basis and trying to recycle that into powering these small, low power devices. And in our case, we talk about, you know, biometric smart cards with S-Key, obviously specifically looking at, at access control, which not only has the convenience and ease of use as it just works out the box and you don't have to charge it, but it can also last the life of a card because there's no battery in it. You just don't ever have to think, you know, where have I left that charging dongle or, or when was the last time I recharged this? Um, I think another kind of, challenge affecting um the industry and, and kind of the company in terms of what we're trying to solve is is the fact that passwords and pins can be hacked so you know it's, it's well known that simply by having someone look over your shoulder or you know you've, you've forgot your card you borrow your friends or your colleagues think things can get hacked and so biometrics are about five times more secure than traditional four-digit pins of course there's different studies but usually it's about five times more that they're quoted to be but it's most important the fact that you're tying access to individuals' fingerprints. And so, you know, gone are the days of, oh, that wasn't me that kind of went into the server room kind of after hours or, oh, someone stole my card or used it. You know, the moment that card leaves your possession, it's useless to anyone else. Um, and so really being able to tie that access and, and hold the accountability, but also have that security is something we're looking to, to really kind of uh, address and, and challenge. Um, and then the last one, which is, I guess, the one that kind of I initially said three but actually four I think I think it's the, the hangover from COVID because um COVID's introduced many challenges in in terms of access control strategies I'd say you know lockdowns and remote working have forced businesses to invest quite a lot of money into their cybersecurity policies and everyone VPNing in working remotely sometimes across the globe right however the threat of physical intrusion I'd argue remains just as important you know we assume everyone's at home but actually what's happening in the office you know Pre-COVID, if you saw an unfamiliar face, you would maybe be inclined to challenge that individual. You know, I've never seen that person. Sorry, can I help you? But, you know, three years of remote working, you know, it's quite hard to know. Is that a new hire since we since we were in lockdown or is it a new cleaning staff? Um, of course, that assumes you're even in the office at all. Right. Um, because with hybrid working, you know, the footfall is much lower. And then, of course, there's the, the hygiene component of the fact that, you know, a lot of us have become less inclined to touch public or shared surfaces which was often the case with, you know, pin code readers for, for accessing into the office where you have to put in your code. And so, again, we look at how can you maintain that security level or in, in, the, in the case of biometrics, increase it, um, but also still kind of maintain robust the user experience, the hygiene element and kind of addressing those in an all encompassing solution. And in terms of the biometric components incorporated within FreeVault's S-Key, could you explain what's involved here for us? 
Yeah, absolutely. So um, I guess in SQ, but yeah, the, the most important bit in terms of where the security comes from is is in the, the fingerprint sensor, which is located um, on, on the card. So that comes from a company called Fingerprints, um, who's a Swedish company, and you know they're a world leader in fingerprint sensors. Been around for over 20 years, um, shipped over 1.5 billion uh, fingerprint sensors over the, over the two decades, and you know have over 40% market share in the mobile phone market. So. What that means is effectively they've got a very rich history in biometrics since the tech first started coming onto the scene. Um, but what that means is that, you know, biometric solutions typically have presented challenges for businesses because of data protection um, and especially around regulations and in the UK and Europe for GDPR because biometrics is kind of classified under special category. And so with, with SK, how um, that addresses that is the fact that we use the on-device approach championed by, by fingerprints themselves, where the biometric data is enrolled and securely stored and matched and authenticated all on the card. It never leaves the card. It's all done locally. And effectively, that means there's no databases, of, um, no secure data, um, biometric data, excuse me, being held in the cloud or being transferred. And on the flip side for SK, that also means that we can work seamlessly with existing infrastructure because of the fact that the data is stored and managed all locally on the card it means there's no costly retrofits or software updates to handle that biometric data from a kind of infrastructure perspective um, and so customers can can maintain their existing systems whether it's the readers on the wall or the software they've got installed across all the sites um, and still use sky and get that biometric layer but without having to touch it all um, and ultimately you know it also reflects our belief in privacy in that individuals should retain full control of the data. And so being able to leverage um, fingerprint software libraries alongside the sensors, which we've got in the card, we're able to develop a kind of security, secure, sorry, privacy first product that, you know, we'd be happy to trust our own biometric data. In, um, and we use the solution in our office ourselves. What are the major benefits of the S key for end users in your view? Uh, so I think the main benefits, there's, I guess the Three key ones, um, and I've touched upon it a bit um, a few minutes ago, but really the, the, the first one is the fact that it works with existing readers. Um, and so, you know, the usual suspects, right, HID, Paxton, Salto, TDSI, Axis, you know, all of these systems are have, have a quite important um, install base in the UK and in, in Europe. And so ultimately, SKI is able to work with these systems without having to change anything on the system. So you don't have to lay a single wire, you don't have to change the software, it simply works out the box and the system will just see another card um, and be able to communicate with it in exactly the same way as a traditional kind of MyFair or blank access card today. Um, and then on kind of extending that to the second benefit is the fact that because the data is stored on the card, as I said earlier, you know, it means the system doesn't have to change, but also it means that from a GDPR and privacy perspective, compliance is a lot easier for for businesses and from what we've seen with our customers also there's less kind of um, resistance from the employees because of, of the fact that you know where's my data well it's in your pocket ah, okay fine you know you don't have it in some server somewhere in the cloud or kind of overseas and I guess the third major benefit is really the fact that as I touched upon earlier it's batteryless so it means that not only is there you know virtually zero cost of maintenance but obviously it also helps businesses deliver strong sustainability credentials kind of for adopting the solution. So little things as well, like, you know, we, we ship them in, in in paper cards, paper sleeves rather than plastic sleeves, as is traditionally done today. We're constantly looking at kind of using more and more recycled plastic in them. And no other biometric access solution is able to work with the existing 
uh, the majority of existing readers without requiring a battery to power in it, but also helping businesses drive these sustainability credentials on their end. And what vertical sectors is FreeVault Technologies looking to target at the moment? Um, so at the moment, um, most of our customers um, and what we're targeting is around kind of defence, um, manufacturing, you know, both food and chemical, as well as health sectors, where having that additional layer of security really is a painkiller solution, you know, versus, versus the vitamin solution. So, you know, we are cognizant that certain industries security um, is a nice to have, not a kind of must have or need to have. And so initially we're going for those kind of more high security applications. Um, and, you know, we, we have already seen that. That being said, that there is appetite in other areas. So we've had interest for time of time and attendance systems in other verticals, which which is interesting because obviously we set out ESKI to be about increasing security and adding those layers. But we've had people saying, well, actually, I can use it to, to control who's clocking in and out and making sure that I'm paying my employees because there's a direct kind of um, ROI on, on the investment in ESKI and kind of um, who I'm paying for the work delivered. So, you know, we're continuously working with customers to find new applications um, where that kind of benefit of tying access to a person's fingerprint really provides a key kind of ROI and USP for that business. Yeah. And, and ultimately, the vision for us is to kind of bridge the gap between physical and, and logical access. So at the moment, I talked about, you know, the physical side. Um, but we're also looking at, at the logical side to, to be able to have a more kind of encompassing solution. And last but not least, looking ahead to the new year, what are the company's plans for the next 12 months, Gonzalo? So I guess what well, I guess yeah, picking up where, where I left off about just a second ago, I guess logical access is something that we're, we're looking to, to really bring in because the idea for us is to kind of converge and have a converged um, access solution. So the idea being you come to work, you use ESCI to get into the building, Use it to log into your into your PC or your system, or if you're in a factory, uh, multiple systems. You know, you might release it, secure printing jobs with it, pay the canteen, etc. You know, we we see ESKI becoming a more unified solution as a key, kind of key value proposition for for widespread adoption. Um, but that being said, you know, now that we've built the ESKI platform, we do also have several other projects in kind of healthcare and cryptocurrency spaces, whereby. The benefits I talked about, the free vault technology, the, this energy harvesting technology, um, really provide an edge to, to certain solutions where um, the ability to work with just about any RF power source kind of gives that edge. So think about, you know, powering a card or cryptocurrency wallet from your mobile phone to validate transactions. As I talked about earlier, clocking in and out of work. Um, we've got quite a few things on the horizon and, and it's, yeah, it's a really exciting time for us here at free vault as we continue to invest in our core technology and kind of keep ahead of the market competition but also always exploring new opportunities in the access control space and beyond. And, and kind of, as I said, with our partner fingerprints, kind of being able to leverage that and find new applications where we, we can kind of solve those problems. That brings us to the end of this latest edition of the Security Matters podcast. Many thanks indeed to Jay Bullock of Anubis Security and also Gonzalo de Gisbert from Prevault Technologies for their highly valued contributions. Many thanks also to our podcast sponsors, The Security Event. The Security Event runs at the NEC in Birmingham on the 25th, 26th and 27th of April 2023. To register for the show, visit www.thesecurityevent.co.uk. Don't forget to visit our website at www.securitymassesmagazine.com where you can access all of our podcasts and also read the latest news and opinion from the security business sector. You can view our dedicated features content and sign up to receive our very popular weekly e-news bulletins. 
Please do contact us if there are any key themes or issues you would like us to explore on upcoming broadcasts. You can do so on Twitter by using the hashtag SecurityPod. On that note, make sure you follow us on Twitter at WBMSecMatters and access our LinkedIn page at Security Matters magazine and website. Please do like and share the podcast content and spread the word among your industry colleagues. You can listen to the Security Matters podcast for free on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube or Podbean. To download the podcast on iTunes or Spotify, all you need to do is enter the term Security Matters into your chosen platform search box. We'll see you next time.